Awesome. Thanks, guys. Good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to Hiawatha again. Uh, my name is, and welcome back for most of you, I guess, and if it's your first Sunday, as Spence said, welcome uh, for the first time. Glad you guys are here. Uh, my name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors. Uh, maybe I said that. I have deja vu second service, uh, thinking, uh, did I say that or not? Was it first service or did I just say that? So if I repeat myself, <laughs> that's what's going on. Um, we are going to spend the next little bit of time here talking about Jesus uh, through the lens of Zechariah, which is one of the Old Testament prophets. We've been in uh, this book now for a couple of weeks. If you're just joining us, you're uh, three weeks in. Uh, it's a 12, actually 14 chapter book, so we'll be in it, I think, through most of the spring into June uh, at some point. I forget the end dates, uh, and then there's something new after that. Um, but just to catch you guys up to speed a little bit on where we are, if you're, if you're brand new to the Bible, um, or to Zechariah and to that uh, section of the Old Testament that we call prophetic literature, I'll summarize this briefly, um, and as the, the series goes on, we'll try to keep doing this, but if you uh, want more, uh, just let us know. We, we love talking about the Bible. I hope that's clear just, uh, in terms of how we convey that uh, through preaching and otherwise, but um, if it's not, I just want to say that. We value the Bible very highly here and love it, uh, and, it's, uh, and it's, God helps it to be accessible, I think, by prayer, and as we read this in community, as we ask him for help, and as we apply the gospel to our understanding of it, and we'll uh, teach through that a little bit today as an example of that, but at the same time, it's tricky, and, and we're in a very difficult section, uh, not just book, but section of the Bible to understand, uh, and so the, just the need for prayer, and I think the community itself to understand this, not just through preaching, but throughout the week in our groups, and as we read this individually, is uh, at a paramount uh, level, so, or high level. Uh, but we're going to do that anyway. Today, Zechariah is, um, like I said, the last uh, section of the Old Testament, which we call one of the return prophets. So Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi are the last three books of the Old Testament. They are what we call return prophets in that they ministered uh, during the time Israel, or this kind of so southern kingdom subset of Israel called Judah, returned from Babylonian captivity. So they were in exile at this juncture in biblical history. Uh, the background to all this actually is God was and is amazingly kind and patient to the human race after sin enters the world. And he covenants with a people, a, a man who turns into a family, then a large family, then a nation called Israel, uh, and makes promises kind of through them, to them, but through them to the world. Saying, through you I'm going to bless the world, but even though in its in its cursed state now, I'm still going to bring an undoing of that curse. I'm going to bless it somehow and, and, and right all wrongs and many other versions of that promise. It happens at the very beginning of the book, actually, in Genesis, right after sin occurs. So against all, all of that, though, people are still sinful. And, and what sin elicits biblically over and over and over again, other than just harm to ourselves and other people and bringing grief and offense to God, is it elicits exile. And so if you understand that, you understand actually quite a bit about the history of the book, is that Israel, which is a microcosm of the human race, so all of us kind of through them and with them, have been over and over again exiled, kind of in an ultimate sense we just are, but that repeats in the biblical storyline to kind of undergird it, underline it, emphasize it, point at it, saying, this is really true. We are not where God is because we have sinned against him, we've rebelled, we've actually wanted to go our own way. We haven't wanted to either believe in him or just truly believe in the sense that we get life from him and uh, apply just uh, his grace you know, to our lives. And we, we've sinned, we've hurt others, we've hurt God. All this stuff has elicited uh, exile. And so that's happening now around 520 B.C. 
Zechariah is ministering or prophesying about their return to the land. So they were in Babylonian captivity, in exile, away from God's presence in his land, the promised land, for 70 years. And God is graciously calling them back now. And it's really important to understand this backdrop to everything Zechariah, God through Zechariah is saying. It's not because of their righteousness. It's, it's not because they experienced some kind of purgatory or something in exile that God is saying, all right, you know, your sin's kind of worn off. The, the dirty laundry has aired for 70 years, and now I'll bring you back. It's that they're still sinning. They're, they're still rebelling. They're still in this place of being grossly imperfect and rebels, like all of us as human beings, as disbelievers, faithless ones. God says, in spite of it, come home. In spite of it, come back. Up, he'll say in this passage today, up from Babylon, escape to Zion or Jerusalem, this, this hometown of mine, essentially. Come back to where I am. It's an invitation based on grace, not on uh, inherent goodness or righteousness, which is such a crucial part of the biblical story to get and to remember because we're prone to forget it and to just not believe it and, and to kind of live out of the fact that we think we're good, which will just miss us the cross over and over and over again. Uh, but we won't miss it today as we never uh, seek to. So, so what, what God is doing then, as this is an important piece too, to spiritualize this a bit, what Zechariah is doing as Israel is coming back is he's using language that's associated with that return, and he's saying, I want to talk to you though about a better kind of return that's still coming in the future. So as Israel's physically coming back, there's a spiritual return on the horizon that's kind of happening now, but it's going to happen in greater ways in the future. That's for all nations, not just Israel. And it's going to be once and for all. People are going to truly return to me in this final capacity and final way. So he's showing Zechariah a picture of this in a symbolic way. He's seeing visions and Zechariah's prophesying this to Judah, but kind of through them. To all, to all of the world, really, all of us now, as we read this book, this is God's word for us, but it's grounded in history. You've got to have this in mind. It's grounded in history and an actual historical and theological event of people physically returning to God. As that's happening, God is saying, uh, essentially, Jesus is coming. And when Jesus comes, he will truly return you to God. He will die for your sins. He will usher in an era of peace and righteousness and defense, as we'll talk about today, God will, will defend us on the highest level, and it will be, again, for, for all people. So it's kind of like the ultimate, you think that's great? We'll just wait. You know, we, we say that a lot sometimes to each other, or you might have just heard that before, kind of a cliche phrase, but you think that's good or think that's great, whether we see that idea conveyed or spoken, that's basically what the prophets in the Old Testament are saying. This is good, this is, this is even great and glorious, but there's a better version, a much gl more glorious version of those things that are coming. So they're not just kind of dropping the word Jesus or the word Christ or just Messiah language in the Old Testament in our laps. They're using, they're kind of shrouding it in the, in the language of the Old Testament. So that the idea now is that we have the hope of a return to God. It, like Israel return, but much better, much greater than that. And so Zechariah has already been seeing this, and we're going to see it almost every week, just with a different kind of image. Uh, but if you're new to the book, um, just have this idea of returning to God as one of the main motifs. And knowing God, God is having one eye on the present, 520 B.C., or Israel's experiences, one eye on the future. Christ is the fulfillment of all that, that that is happening. 
If you have uh, a kind of basic understanding of that, that'll be helpful. But if you don't, don't worry. We'll, uh, we'll explain it as, as we go here. It's, it's, it's very tricky. So, God is our wall. Uh, one of the main motifs today, uh, there's a lot going on. It's kind of a hodgepodge sermon um, in some ways thematically, but this is one of the big ones we'll come to in uh, just a bit. But think about that. What does that mean? God is like a wall to us, a defensive wall. It's wonderful. Uh, we'll explain it more. But for now, let's uh, read it in full. Zechariah 2, 1 to 13. If you want to turn there, in a, if you, one of your Bibles, a Bible or your phone, that's great. And, but this will be on screen too if you want to just follow along. Zechariah 2, verse 1. Uh, Zechariah speaking. And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. Then I said, where are you going? And he said to me, to measure Jerusalem, to see what its width and what is its length. And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward, and another angel came forward to meet him, and said to him, run. Say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. Up, up, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord. For I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heavens, declares the Lord. Up, escape to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. For thus says the Lord of hosts, For thus says the Lord of hosts, after his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you, for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. Behold, I will shake my hand over them, and they shall become plunder for those who serve them. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people, and I will dwell in your midst. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. Be silent all flesh before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. Love that last line. Okay. So to explain this vision briefly, to summarize it basically in a few words essentially here, is this is... um, an apocalyptic vision, when we say apocalypse or apocalyptic, that comes from the Greek word meaning hidden things. Uh, and so sometimes in the prophets or like in the book of Revelation, in the New Testament, you see things like, and then I saw an angel, or and then I saw two lampstands. Then I saw this heavily symbolic vision. That's more of an apocalyptic version of prophecy. Uh, prophecy is kind of similar, but it's a little bit more straightforward, where God might say something like, I'm going to send my suffering servant to die for your sins and to right all wrongs. That might be more of a prophetic declaration, but apocalypse is a bit more, and I saw the heavens opened, and I saw a little scroll, and I saw ten horns, and uh, it's veiled in symbolism. Uh, and Zechariah is uh, very much like that, uh, kind of like the book of Revelation. Again, if you've, the last book of the Bible, if you've read that, um, and that's partly why we're doing this, is we like Revelation, so therefore we like Zechariah. And we'll bounce back and forth a little bit with Revelation even today, to borrow from some of its language to help interpret this book. I think that's a little, it's a little bit more clear. But basically, this is an apocalyptic vision then, or a prophecy for Israel or Judah to, to run back to Jerusalem and Zion and for the city and wall to be rebuilt. Um, so if I didn't mention that before, when the Babylonians sacked the city, they destroyed everything. So the, the temple was destroyed, the wall around the city was destroyed, just left in shambles. And so when God says, come home, 
he's also saying, I promise to rebuild these structures that are, that are very theologically important, that once were glorious and now are just crumbs basically on the floor, I will instigate and initiate this rebuilding process. And, and so I said last week, if you want to read, if you haven't already, even if you have, read the books of Ezra and Nehemiah uh, in conjunction with this series. A great, it's, it's a fairly lengthy but uh, theologically rich um, and helpful biblical theological historical context to Zechariah's day. So Zechariah's ministry and prophesying as, you know, God is saying, come home as they're returning rebuild. So that's what he's seeing here. And then the promise that God will indeed dwell in it again, which is a picture of salvation. We kind of talked about that before, God being where his people are again. The, uh, in verse 1, the, the measuring line idea is essentially a picture of a land surveyor uh, measuring Jerusalem, preparing to rebuild, sizing it up, uh, picture a big, uh, you know, um, kind of trippy-looking uh, tape measure or something, you know, in this vision uh, that, that he's seeing. The, the, the city is being re, resurveyed and remeasured. The, the hole is beginning to be dug. The foundations are starting to be poured, that kind of thing. Uh, civil engineers, angelically, are kind of being seen uh, by, um, the, by, by the prophet here, by Zechariah. So a lot of hope. It's kind of like if you're wanting to see something build, like your, your house, if your house is built from the ground up, or, you know, if you're a Vikings fan, you saw the stadium being built a few years ago from the ground up, you know, um, the dome being torn down and the, the initial groundwork being laid, you know, as a Vikings fan, you might think, oh, there's some hope, you know, in that initial. Is <laughs> a, as a long-suffering Vikings fan, um, not as much hope as the gospel brings, uh, to, be, <laughs> to be sure, but... Um, but Small level, small, small H hope, um, some hope there. So think like on those terms. Basically, that's what Zechariah is seeing. Um, so the, the big question I want to start with, and we'll jump off this in three different ways, is to ask the question and, and ultimately answer it. How do we know that this prophecy, with all, with all that said, how do we know that this prophecy prophesies beyond itself to something even greater? And what is the greater thing? Great question to ask any time you ever read any of the prophets. Uh, it will, I promise you, I can't promise you'll get all the answers because I don't have them either, but uh, it's a difficult genre to interpret, but it will get a lot easier. If you're always asking the question, where is Christ? But, I'll, but asking, how is this language veiled in Old Testament imagery looking beyond the initial fulfillments to, to a better version of them? If you ask that question, you'll, I think, um, be a bit safer, potentially more orthodox in your... Uh, in your interpretations of, um, of, the, uh, of, the, of the prophets. And so what I want to do today is kind of teach through this a bit, give you, we'll preach it. Teaching and preaching are different, so we'll, uh, preaching's more what this time is for. But I also want to teach and kind of give you an example of how to do that as well. And we're, we're going to give a few examples here. There are other ways to handle this passage um, with the same kind of framework. But some examples of how to ask this question interpretationally and uh, kind of go through the symbolism to get to the point, which is Jesus crucified and raised. So the first answer to this question right from the passage, how do we know it's prophesying beyond itself, is uh, in verse 4, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people within it. So it's a very glorious image that he gets pretty much uh, right off the bat. And when we read that, now, one level, we might think immediately about this immense hope that there is for a multitude, not just a people, but a multitude of people 
to return from Babylonian captivity, from slavery to God. And again, by grace. So as sinners, if we read that, we might think, I'm just like them, and they weren't cleaning their life up when they were called back. So we might see ourselves in that, and we should. I've already done that in this, in this series. We should think about that on one uh, kind of basic level. That's good. We've talked about this already, too, how this idea, this theme, constitutes one of the main themes of Zechariah and the whole Bible, returning to God. In fact, right in this passage, a lot of times when you read the Bible, you can do this. I encourage you to try to do this sometimes. Don't force it necessarily, but you can see like the synopsis of the entire biblical story in a few verses. You know, whereas you might think, that's not the point necessarily of Zechariah trying to do that where God threw him, but it ends up happening because it's so repeated. And so what I mean by that is here you see in just a few verses this message of God saying, I have spread you abroad, I've exiled you because of your sin, but flee from Babylon now. Up, rise up, come home, escape to Zion where I am, come back by grace, and then simply rejoice because God and man now dwell together again in verse 10. If you don't know the Bible, that's the whole Bible. The whole Bible is in Zechariah 2, in this one, in this one vision, it's just one way of looking at it. But, but with that said, and here's the catch, this doesn't really happen in Old Testament times. And we could still ask, well, how does that happen, though? So all the questions aren't fully answered here, but that's still a synopsis of the whole thing. As we back up a bit, going back to our big question for the day, this doesn't really happen in Old Testament times. Jerusalem's not inhabited with multitudes of people so that they can't even make walls. So, many, so much livestock, they can't even have the walls. Or overflow, like, like picture a, pouring coffee or water into a cup and it's just overflowing. You know, picture that kind of imagery here. Uh, that doesn't really happen in Old Testament times. It kind of happens, but doesn't really. Israel returns, but they don't really return. It's one of the main messages of Ezra and Nehemiah, like I mentioned before, is, wow, people are coming back, but so much sin, so much insistence on not repenting and worshiping other gods and intermarrying, which Israel wasn't supposed to do in that day, and not keeping the Passover and all this stuff, list after list after list. It's kind of like, I thought this was supposed to be it. And it wasn't. It was, but it wasn't. That's the whole point. It drives the story forward. Sin always drives it forward to its proper conclusion, which is Christ, who's not sinful, who is the essence of God, who makes a better way, and who acts in a once-and-for-all kind of way, not a repeated way. Not a, he ends the cycle of exile, um, essentially. So, so that's the question. So we ask, like, how do we know this? How do we know that something even greater is on the horizon, just interpretationally? Verse 4 here basically tells us, it says, uses the phrase, without walls. So Jerusalem shall be, this is the vision, shall be inhabited full of this multitude of people, but there's no walls. And if, if you know something about Old Testament history, and I, I mentioned this earlier for clarity, if you know something about the Bible, you know that the wall was rebuilt. Jerusalem does again get a physical wall installed around it for defensive measures. It was very important physically for any city to have a wall in that day, and for much of history, for defensive measures, just to, just to stop, I mean, anybody from just going an insane mine, you know, which, which would have happened. So walls were extremely important defensively. Uh, militarily for the city. So we, we know it was rebuilt. The, the book of Nehemiah, Ezra again recount this. And not only do they recount it, and was it rebuilt in 445 BC, so about a little under a century later, it took that long. But biblically, this is recounted, and biblically, it's dedicated and celebrated. 
So God and the people rejoice. There's a huge, if you know those books, it's a huge celebration, a huge festival, uh, shouting with joy that God has, I mean, brought, and that's brought us back, brought us back. He's rebuilt, he's enabled these rebuilding efforts to actually be successful. And there's threats to it and all that. If you know Nehemiah, God thwarts that and all this great stuff. So, so it is rebuilt. We know this historically as well because later in AD 70, after Christ uh, dies, is resurrected, and ascends, in AD 70, it is destroyed again, which will become important for some later points, which I'll get to soon. But for this first one, and to kind of teach through this a bit, these are the kind of, kinds of red flags and antennas that should go up as we know, get to know the Old Testament better and how the story goes. When we see without walls, we should say, huh? To say Jerusalem will be a city without walls is in one sense wrong. It's not accurate. Physically, historically inaccurate. So it should raise our antenna and say, well, what's going on? What could he mean then? If it's not the physical wall, what is it? The vision seems to be showing wall-less, uncontainable glory. But we know historically it was quite containable and even unglorious, major, which is a major message of the return prophets to say that this is amazing thing God is doing physically, but oh, it, it pales in comparison to what the prophets are saying. You know, as people in that day, whether it's Nehemiah or Ezra or any Jew that's, or Zechariah for that matter, you know, comparing the texts, the passages, the scriptures, the Old Testament that they have in writing and knowing their history, but just looking around their city and then hearing from Zechariah, they're saying, mismatch. It's not lining up. What you're saying, I'm not seeing, even though I'm kind of seeing. What you're saying about walls and temples, yeah, we're seeing it, but the way you described it, that's not what I'm seeing. Way more glorious. There's a better version, but so what are you talking about? See how that drives the story forward? Israel coming back was not the end of the story. It was never meant to be. The temple being rebuilt, the wall, people re-inhabiting and being kind of close to God again, never meant to be the end of the story. And what helps drive this forward is prophets like Zechariah who speak in certain terms to not let us kind of wallow in it, to make us long uh, for something better. So what adds to the tension then? The second thing to the question, how do we know that this is prophesying beyond itself, is historically only Israel returned. Only Israel returned to the city of God. But in the vision, Zechariah is seeing many nations returning. And this phrase, wonderful phrase, they joined themselves to the Lord in that day. And, and it even says many nations will be called the people of God. Which, which we'll, we'll talk about this covenantally in a minute, but if you know a little bit about the Old Testament, again, you'll know, again, red flags should go up because the people of God were Israel. You, you, couldn't, be, you couldn't be called my people if you were a Gentile, if you were an, a non-Jew uh, from another nation. And so the fact that Zechariah is speaking these terms is conflicting. There's a tension here that we're supposed to feel. But before we get to that, what does this tell us right off the bat, though? Even just with this, without knowing any of that, maybe, just reading this, when you read this, what does this, what does this mean? In part, it means God shows no partiality. Israel isn't special. They're just like us. This is a great example of how God sees Israel as a microcosm of the human experience. 
Paul the Apostle in Romans 9 something, I forget the verse, I think it's Romans 9, it's Romans something something, but he says, um, to be a Jew is to be one inwardly. To truly be a Jew is to be one of the heart. Major ramifications for how we read the Old Testament right there in that verse. If that's true, then we look to Israel as a spiritual microcosm uh, of us. It means that to truly be a person of God then, to truly be a, a spiritual Israelite, is to be one by faith, to be one in the heart, to align with Christ, which we'll come to here in, in a second. So what that means thematically for the book then is that, they, again, their return physically precedes a spiritual return of all spiritual exiles or sinners forever. That's why there's hope here for us. I mentioned a couple weeks ago, uh, John Piper has said that Israel is the historical theater of the conscience of the world. The historical theater of the conscience of the world. So uh, they're kind of putting on display dramatically what all of our story is, all of us. And we look at them and say, that's me. But so, but to go back to this though, that the timing's really important here. To go back to the nations at the tension here, because the nations did not come back to Jerusalem. This is one of those things, again, where you'd be kind of comparing Zechariah's prophecy to kind of looking around and seeing, well, what's happening? And you're not seeing nations come back. That did, if you didn't know this, that did not happen uh, during this time of history. The nations did not return. Tension, antennas, red flags. Just Israel came back. Just the Jews. In fact, this is where it gets really interesting, in fact, they couldn't come back. According to the Old Testament, the old system, God commanded Israel to separate from other nations because of sin. So when you think about the Old Testament, you should think about a lot of things, but one of the things is it was a covenant that expressed in many and various ways how bad things really were. So this widespread separation, and not just for Gentile types, um, non-Jews, but for the Jews. They couldn't get close to God. Even though he was kind of drawing close there was this Old Testament thing of, come close to me, but stay away. This conflicting message, you know. Come close to me, I'm coming near to you. Come close to me, but stay away. You can't come in where I am. You can't come into the Holy of Holies. You can't come into the inner sanctuary of the, of the temple where I am, or you will die. It's kind of like, well, that's good, but uh, not great. Tension, right? And part of that separation, then, is for God to say, Israel, I'm separating you from the nations, if you touch a Gentile, you're unclean, ceremonially. And they were kind of further out in terms of the rings. There were some that associated, if you know the story of like Rahab and, and Ruth and those types, but for the most part, Gentiles were kept further away, non-Jews. And so not only did this not happen historically, it couldn't happen covenantally. Under the Old Testament system, the nations could not come back. So this prophecy then begs for the New Testament. It has to come. There's no way for Zechariah's prophecy to come true unless Jesus comes. There's no way. Absolutely will never happen. Until Jesus comes, this is the best part of this, until he dies for sins and bleeds for sinners and establishes a New Testament, a new way for all people, there's no way for Zechariah's prophecy to become true. It begs for a new system with different rules when sinner and God would truly be united again and subsequently people from all nations. 
And this, this is why actually in the New Testament you see the first Christians who are all Jewish uh, initially. If you know the book of Acts, Gentiles are being folded in pretty quickly here and they're seeing Gentile Christians speak in tongues. And they're seeing them full of the Holy Spirit. They're seeing them believe the same gospel. And they're remembering what the prophets like Zechariah said and they're going back and, oh, that's right, God said this would happen. But it's not until after Christ that it's possible. It's a very important timeline thing to understand here. Very important to get. One example of this is in Acts 15, quoting Amos 9. Amos is a different minor prophet of the Old Testament. Um, but understand, he even says this here, I think. No, he doesn't. I think right before this, he says, the prophets agree. There's this uh, term in theology uh, called conflation, which means that the prophets agree. In other words, they have all the same message. So to quote one is to quote another. And Amos has a very similar message here to Zechariah. And this is James standing up. This is the context here. Is Jewish Christians are hearing about Gentile non-Jews being folded in, being saved by the same gospel. And they're asking the question, trying to understand that. And the reason, even the fact that they're trying to understand, what does that tell you? It didn't happen beforehand. It was weird for a reason. Because they're Old Testament thinkers. If, the, if, the, if this wasn't weird, then... We could maybe understand Zechariah in a different way, but it, w it was weird. It wasn't possible before, but now through Christ, it's possible for anybody to be saved. And so in Acts 15, he's quoting from Amos. This is James speaking, I believe, at this council in Jerusalem of Jewish Christians, understand, oh, understanding now that, oh, yes, Gentiles, God foresaw this. He says, after this, God speaking through Amos, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David, the temple that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnants of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles, there it is, who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from old. So you see how the, the early church is interpreting this Old Testament passage about rebuilding the city, about returning to God, about restoring the wall? They're interpreting it spiritually. They're saying now... What rebuilding, restoration, and return has to do with is seeking the Lord. It's returning to God. It's receiving the gospel. It's not a literal wall or city, but it has to do with the church, Jew and Gentile, who are saved in Christ and who truly return to God and are restored in the heart. That's what it has to do with. That's why they're quoting Amos and saying this applies now. Whereas before, the Old Testament law was just for Israel and it separated people from people and people from God. Now the New Testament is in Christ's blood, and it's for the nations, and all are included. And so now Jew and Gentile get together and worship together because um, there's no partiality. You see that? Old Testament, separation, law. New Testament, Jesus' blood, inclusion. No more separation. On the God level and the interpersonal level. It's a better way. But make no mistake, until that happens, there's no way, there's no way for us to get back in. The timing here is crucial. And, and this is, uh, you know, Spence mentioned our intro class before. We'll talk, maybe we'll talk about this there too, but um, for those of you who are new to our church especially, um, to sidebar here a second, this is what we want Hiawatha to be on a micro scale. We, we want Hiawatha to be a microcosm of the New Jerusalem, and spiritually. And what I mean by that is we want to be a place, a community where people far from God, very, very far from God, because we all are or were, 
People far from God are gathered in. A hodgepodge crew of sinners who hear the call, up, up, return to Zion by grace, who look at the cross and who gather wounded at Jesus' feet, not with all the answers, but with faith and dependence and a cry of, help me, God. That's what we want. And we're all types of people. That's why I say hodgepodge. Uh, all types. Different backgrounds. You know, um, and this is what's interesting here. In this image of Israel and then Zechariah saying the nations are coming back, you and I are not the Israel. Right? Unless you're Jewish. I won't ask you to raise your hand. But um, if you're Jewish, you can check out for five seconds. Um, if, you're, if you're a Gentile, in this prophecy, you're the nations. You're the nations. It's easy as 21st American Christians sometimes to think the opposite, right? It's, it, and to see this more as a call to international missions. It's not a call to international missions, primarily. It's a declaration of the fact that you are the nations, you and I are the outsiders, and God foresaw and foreknew and foreloved us so much that he foresaw our salvation. He spoke of it 500 years plus before Christ came into the world. That's how much he loves us. 2,500 years ago from today, plus. He foreknew, he foreloved, he foresaw. We're the nations here. See, this is, this is the gospel. It, it's not, this is the hope in Zechariah 2 for outsiders, Gentiles like us. It's not just for a return, and not even just for a multinational return, because the gospel is not multinationalism. Some Christians kind of like to toe that line. The gospel is not multinationalism. The gospel is God with sinners for all nations. That's very different. The gospel is God with sinners again, to use his language. I will be the glory in your midst. I will call you my people. It's Jesus dying for the sins of all. Every tribe, tongue, and nation. That, that's the gospel. It has effects for how the church looks. It has effects for our call to go to the four corners of the world and across our street with the best message ever, the message of the gospel. But the gospel itself is not multinationalism. The message is you and I, without this, we're toast. We are toast. If God didn't prophesy this through Zechariah and all the prophets who agree, conflation, toast. We're the nations, you guys. Praise God the gospel came here, right? Praise God it's here right now in this very room. It's alive. It's active. Praise God it's at work around the world. I'm all over. The all nations, are the Bible translations are happening. That, that Around the world we have this international, all cultures with different kind of aspects or cultural kind of visuals on how spirituality, Christian spirituality can look. It's, it's diverse. It's everywhere. But the main thread is Christ on that cross and that empty tomb. That God wanted this to happen. That's why, that's why we're saved. Third thing here, uh, in answer to the question, how is this going beyond itself, um, is this statement right here. God saying, I will be to her a wall. This is similar to today's first point. Uh, a wall is being rebuilt physically, but what's greater God himself will be the wall. See the lesser to greater thing going on there again? Wall, 
greater wall? Physical wall? Spiritual wall? Jesus. God himself. This is a wall of the fire this time. Much better wall. This reminded me of uh, Revelation 22.5 at the end of the book, which uses the same kind of language, uses the same kind of way of speaking. Uh, when talking about the new Jerusalem or the new earth that we still await when Christ comes back and makes the earth a big garden city, essentially, which is called spiritually and symbolically the new Jerusalem. In describing that, it says this in Revelation 22.5, and night will be no more, which is great news. I guess if you like to be a night owl, it's not the best news, but hopefully you'll learn to love the eternal sun. But anyway, uh, night will be no more. They will need no, they, Christians, will need no light of lamp or sun This is key. For the Lord God will be their light. Right? That's awesome. This is saying the Son was created in part to tell us about Jesus. He gives. He's the true light, John 1 said, as as Spencer read earlier, wherever he went. uh, He's the true light. And actually, if you read Genesis, light was created before the Son, which is interesting. Light existed before the Son did, so we don't need the Son. It just happens to kind of play a role. Until the end, the sun won't exist anymore because God will be sufficient to light the, the, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, the universe, essentially. Just himself. Can't wait. It's one of those things where I don't know what that means, but I can't wait to see it, right? You know, like, how's that going to play out? But it's kind of like Zechariah saying, with the same language, you will have no more need for a wall, for the Lord God will be your wall. Right? This is how it's prophetic and symbolic. Jerusalem did get a wall, so he can't be talking about physical Jerusalem. He must be talking about the new Jerusalem, the spiritual one, the one that you and I are basically constituting right now. We are the city of God. We are where he, the church. We are where he is, where he chooses to dwell. He lives inside of us. And it's going to be even more manifest on that last day, even physically, when we see him face to face. And if you think, if we think about what walls did, this is an important interpretational piece here, what walls did around cities like Jerusalem in that time and for much of history, as defensive measures, as arrow and siege work and ladder absorbing measures, we get a pretty great picture of what God is like and especially what his salvation or his son is like. It's the gospel ahead of time. Like, like Jerusalem was absolutely and totally defenseless without a wall around the city physically, so are we spiritually defenseless without God. There's nothing stopping death and Satan and our old hard hearts, any kind of dark angel, nothing, n- no enemy from just marching in and claiming us as, them, as theirs. There's nothing stopping that from happening. In fact, that was our state before God said, return to the city, and then I'll be your wall. As Christians, we have the wall. Beforehand, we didn't have it, right? We've returned to the city where there actually is a wall, and the wall is God. Outside of Christianity, there's no hope apart from an eternal hell. There's no part, no hope apart from the devil just making you his beating bag in death. And, and actually, in one sense, it's not true because hell is for the devil, too. You know, so uh, sin or death, however you want to understand it. Um, there's no hope. There's no hope for 
your worst nightmares to not come true. No hope. It's because you have no wall, and I have no wall. It's the worst of news, you guys. It's supposed to be that dark and worse than I can even put into words right now. It's supposed to be that dark. But the gospel is supposed to be that bright and have that much hope wrapped around it and, have, and come with that degree of urgency. We, we should, as Christians, we should be like outcasts and outsiders and you know, beggars outside the wall of the city running for dear life into the city. Knowing that's my only hope. That's it. Let me in. I'm naked out here. Absolutely no hope for deliverance and for hope and joy and peace and meaning and for fear not to overrun me and my shame, all of that. No hope. We are spiritually defenseless. And and furthermore, to go back to the metaphor, again, think of what walls did. Like, Like walls took shots for Israel so that Israel wouldn't have to themselves, so does Jesus serve as a go-between and take shots, literally, for us on the cross. Picture the gospel. Picture Jesus is like that. He's like a wall who was, who was flogged, who was whipped, who was nailed to a tree. I mean, all, all this is like the siege works of the enemy and the arrows being aimed at us, but Jesus is thrown up on this cross right in front of him, right in front of us, and it hits him instead. It's classic gospel imagery. It's what the Bible is teaching. He's dying for us and to deflect wrath, punishment, the effects, the debt of our sin. He's actually taking hell on himself. That's why he suffers and why he experiences separation from God, which are classic definition of what hell is. Suffering physically and experiencing separation from God. That's why he goes through both. He's he's bearing hell. And, And so... But, but the good news is, I mean, hell itself, if, if hell's seeking to overwhelm us and hopelessness and drag us into its dark abysses, it has absolutely no chance of getting to us with Christ in its way. No chance. With him in its way, no chance. He's the perfect wall. He's our defense, as the song says. Our, our one defense, our righteousness. Oh God, how I need you. So do you see what kind of love it takes here? This is a loving thing, guys. This is uh, not just a, a um, formula. Do you see what kind of love it takes and how important and absolutely earth-shattering it is for God to say to us, I will beat you a wall? Because he says this to you too. This is what he says to me, all of us today. He's saying, I will beat you a wall. You know how much love it takes for him to say that? Because you know what it means? Because he's not, he's not just saying that I am your defense. He is saying that. But he's also saying, with the wall metaphor in mind, that I am willing to suffer for you. Because walls suffered for their inhabitants. They were hit so that inhabitants wouldn't have to be. Right? This whole point of a wall to keep evil away. Isn't it fascinating that God did this? I mean, talk about something that every other religion in the history of mankind hasn't touched with a million-foot pole. What religion says God will fight for you? Every religion says fight for God. Measure up. Fight his battles. Be good. 
be perfect. It says, be the wall. But Christianity says, I will be your wall. I will fight for you. I will take the hits. God is not hateful. No matter what you've felt or heard, he loves you guys more than you'll ever possibly fathom or imagine. I will be your wall is the gospel because he's the wall. So in conclusion, uh, two things. We look for what the commands and the imperatives are in this passage. There are two. One, be silent. Be silent. The, the, the end of the passage says, don't talk. All flesh be silent before the Lord, for God has roused himself from his holy dwelling to work a great salvation for you. There's lots, there's lots to say, right, as Christians. This isn't saying Christians don't ever speak. There's lots to get excited about. The best message in the world. I've talked for 45 minutes here. You know, I mean, there's, there's lots, of, lots of things we, we have to and should say and rally behind with our words. So this isn't obviously saying never talk, but it is saying there should be an aspect of our spirituality that is silent. When it comes to the gospel and our salvation, ongoingly, not just at our conversion, but ongoingly, there should be an element of our spirituality that closes our mouths before the cross and says with our thoughts, that's sufficient. That's all I need. That, that's my cause. He, Christ is my cause. If we're going to be activists as Christians, we are activated by the love of God. He's our, he, he's our cause for the world. There's lots of things to do, but be silent before the Lord and let him work for you. If the Bible says be silent, we've got to be careful not to speak sometimes and defend ourselves and boast, right? Uh, if it says be still, we've got to be careful to hear that and don't act sometimes. Psalm 46.10 says, be still and know that I am God. Exodus 14, 14 says something like, uh, just be still, don't, just watch the salvation of the Lord. I will fight for you, is the phrase. I will fight for you. Again, what kind of religion says that? Christianity is so unique in this regard. It's so much about his grace that sometimes as Christians, we just sit down in peace, we rest, we don't talk, we gaze at the man on the cross and say, today, before God and before all people, I'm saying he's sufficient, and I don't need to do anything else. That's okay. It really is. Do you believe that? If not, just check your heart. The Bible says be silent. Sometimes we got to be silent. Put down the cause banner. He's the cause. Is he enough? Add to your arsenal of gospel images with this point your arsenal of gospel images, the picture of God putting his own body in harm when you're fired at by evil. It's, it's kind of like God is doing this with you in, in one arm and doing this, holding back evil every day, Christian. As you're sinning, he's doing it. Do you believe it? Not on your best day. On your worst day ever as a Christian, this is what God was doing. Unbelievable, you guys. If you don't believe it or feel it, this is the hard work of applying the gospel by faith to your heart that you're not finished with yet. And I'm in that club. I lead it. I'm the worst. I'm the card-carrying member. 
of not understanding how the gospel can fully change my life alone. But I'm trying. We're trying as a group. You know, because th- this is offensive, you know, for, for us that like to work hard for our faith. But God, I got it. I can, I can do it. I got that. I've been, I've been saved. You know? At whatever level. It's our natural state. Second, the second imperative is to flee Babylon. Repent. Run. Those are the two things it says to do. Reminds me of Revelation 18. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, Babylon, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. This means leave behind your old self, full of disbelief. Leave behind your doubt and your sin and your shame and your hopelessness and your fear and your self-worship and take the long road back to God. It's, it's a road stained with the blood of God's Son himself um, in love for you. And it's a road he's with you on. He's not, you're not alone. He's with you on. But it is a call. This is, this is kind of a what are you going to do moment, right, with the gospel. Are, are you going to do this? You're going to leave your, ba- Babylon is spiritual here, of course, in Revelation 18. as it kind of is in Zechariah too. Babylon is the lost and cursed world. And God's calling people up out of it to be with him by faith through his son. Actively do it. This is written to Christians, Revelation 18 as well, by the way. So we can't think, oh, I did that once. Forget that. What about today? The Bible cares a lot more where you are today than it did about a prayer you prayed 10 years ago. Not to downplay conversion. It's just to say that where are you today and how are we repenting, turning from the old way of living? This is what repentance is. Turning from the old way, and Jesus is over here, hearing the call of Christ, turning from that to Jesus. Repentance is not being a great moral person though that might end up being what it looks like kind of symptomatically. Repentance is turning from old and self-worship to Christ, the essence of the New Testament, and to the cross and the empty tomb, which earns our salvation. So take that long road back. Be silent before the cross, knowing there's nothing you can add to it. And repent. Turn away from the old to the new from all those things I just listed, especially from disbelief and from hopelessness and shame and guilt, turn away and, and run to the new Jerusalem. We pray that for us now. God, thank you uh, for the gospel in this passage, for it's just chock full of imagery that we need to hear. Uh, we always do. Christian or not, uh, in this room, God, uh, there, there's a lot of hope in it for people from all nations, people like us, for Jew and Gentile who are outsiders are kept away from you. Uh, Father, we um, ask for grace to, to penetrate the heart, for it to wreck us and humble us afresh today and make us new in you, uh, that you actually will be sufficient and, and enough, um, that our good deeds will be done by faith in you, not apart from you, um, not an obligation, but out of joy and freedom and, and a whole slew of other things our life will be made up of. It's all about you. And so help us to worship God now in, in, in the freedom that the, the gospel invites us to and, and gives us and uh, be glorified in Christ's name. Amen.